So Paul is writing to Timothy in this letter as he encourages him to remain at Ephesus to combat false teaching that had infiltrated the church. And we talked about myths and endless genealogies last week that these false teachers had come in and tried to really poison the minds of the believers at the church in Ephesus. And part of that false teaching that we looked at last week in verses 8 through 11 came from a misunderstanding and a misapplication of the role of the law. And it seems that these false teachers were viewing the law as the means by which a person is saved. And of course we know that to be counter to what the gospel teaches. So as we often say here, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no other way. So in our passage today, the focus is really autobiographical. Paul gives us information about his own life. He reflects on his own conversion to faith in Christ and his appointment as a missionary in the Lord's service. And what we will see in Paul's remarks here is that his story of conversion is completely unrelated in many ways to the law because we come across passage terms like this in our passage today. Grace and mercy and save. These words characterize the work of God in Paul's life. And so what Paul is teaching Timothy in this passage is that he wants to remind him through sharing his own personal story of how he came to faith in Christ. And Timothy needs this encouragement as he tries to lead the believers in Ephesus to faithfully trust the gospel. So here's the deal. Because God saved Paul from his sin and appointed him for service as a missionary to the Gentiles, then we can know that the gospel has power to save anyone. And this is demonstrated in our passage today three ways. Number one, through Paul's past life without Christ. Number two, Jesus' patience towards Paul. And then number three, Paul's current life in Christ. So, because God saved Paul from his sin and appointed him as a missionary to the Gentiles, then we can trust that the gospel has the power to save anyone through Paul's past life, Jesus' patience towards Paul, and then, of course, Paul's current life in Christ. So let's look, number one, at Paul's past life without Christ. Now, Paul begins by rightfully giving thanks to Jesus for giving him strength to serve. God's faithfulness in service to give Paul the right to become an apostle is completely God's doing. Do not miss this. It is God who is entrusting Paul to faithful missionary service. So what one commentator said is, Paul is saying that God knew that one day Paul would be trustworthy enough in the future because God knows everything and he therefore appointed him to service as a missionary in the present. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple eternal act. And that just blows our minds. But God fully knows himself 
and all things, actual and possible, in one simple and eternal act. Thus, when he calls Paul to be a missionary to the Gentiles, he could see the totality of Paul's life and deem him trustworthy for service as a missionary, in spite of what he has experienced in his past. The great news in the New Testament is that we actually have a lot of evidence that Paul himself gives us and others give us about Paul's life prior to faith in Christ. And I'm going to show you just two places in the New Testament that give us evidence of this. The first is Galatians 1, beginning in verse 13. This is what Paul says. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone So this is Paul telling us about his own conversion. But then later, Luke gives us a description of Paul's prior life before Christ. In Acts chapter 8, here's what Luke tells us. And Saul, who becomes Paul, approved of his execution. Talking about Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Paul's past life was both a burden... And a blessing. It came with great shame and embarrassment at times. And yet throughout his ministry, it was still a blessing to others. As you read many of Paul's letters, what you will find is that he's constantly having to establish credibility with the people that he's writing to. Because so many people throughout Paul's ministry doubted that his conversion was legitimate. Because of his prior life, before Jesus saved him, when he was persecuting the church and ravaging the church and standing, giving approval as the people stoned Stephen to death. At the same time, however, as he shared the gospel and people heard him, many were amazed that God could take someone like Saul and transform him into a great apostle and missionary. So if you are here today in Christ, just know that your life prior to Christ and your conversion to Christ is both a burden and a blessing. But the blessing of salvation, in spite of our past, in spite of our enslavement to sin and self, is that in the process of communicating the truth of the gospel to others, we can shed light on God's grace and mercy in our own lives. Many people who know you 
and maybe knew you prior to faith in Christ might be shocked to learn that God saved you. I know if I went home right now, there would be people in the community where I grew up who would be astounded at what God did in my life. They would be even more astounded at what I do for a living, which is why I don't like to go home very often. (laughs) But even though many of us, in fact, everyone that is in Christ, we are embarrassed oftentimes by our sin, ashamed of our sin, it gives us the opportunity to communicate the goodness and the graciousness of God towards people like us. So my sanctification in Christ from the time when I was converted at 14 has been a slow and steady process. And there is still, even today, embarrassment and shame when I think back over the way that I treated people and the things that I said and the things that I did in my past. But the blessing comes when in spite of all that, I can tell people, Jesus saved me from my sin. He didn't forgive me because of anything I did, but because of the death and resurrection of his son. So Paul's conversion is a good reminder for any that are in Christ today that a person's sinful state is never more powerful than the truth of the gospel. Do we put limits on the gospel Do we sometimes think that certain people are simply outside the bounds of being saved by the truth of the gospel? Of course, we would never say this verbally, but functionally, sometimes we live that way. We are guilty of looking at certain people and assuming that that individual wants nothing to do with the gospel or that they have no desire to know about the things of God. But in reality, that's just an excuse so that we don't have to communicate the truth of the gospel to them. See, evangelism often suffers for a lot of reasons. But one reason is because sometimes we think wrongly that certain people are not worthy of the gospel. And yet, if we were to return to the scriptures, we of course know that is not true. And when we are guilty, and I am guilty, of thinking this way, may God through his spirit, remind us that we also did nothing to be worthy of the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 in Paul's great letter that he writes to the church, he says, For it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, Our evangelism, if you're in Christ today and you're out proclaiming the good news of the gospel, our evangelism is always more effective when we appreciate and remember the gospel's transformation in our own lives. And it was Paul's past life without Christ that God used throughout his ministry to prepare him for a life of service to proclaim Christ. So number one, we learn about Paul's life without Christ. But number two, we also learn Jesus' patience towards Paul. So not only can we trust that the gospel has the power to save because of Paul's past life, but we can also trust it because of the patience that Jesus shows towards Paul. Look at the second half of verse 13. 
It says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now we need to be very clear here. Ignorance is not the condition in which God bestows his mercy. We're told, in fact, in Romans 9, that God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So God's mercy is ultimately based on his sovereign choice, not on whether a person is knowledgeable or ignorant of the gospel. In the context of this letter, however, Paul's defiance was done in ignorance. In contrast to the false teachers whose defiance was done while they knew the truth of the gospel. So willful defiance, which characterizes the false teachers that Timothy is dealing with, they knew the gospel. Their defiance was done willingly. But in contrast, before Paul, or Saul, met Jesus on the Damascus road, he was completely ignorant of the gospel. And he talks about this. In Romans 10, when describing the Jewish people, he says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So the Jewish people were practicing righteousness through the law, which they wrongly assumed justified them. But Paul makes it very clear, one verse later, in Romans 10.4, that the law is not what justifies. Here's what he says. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So one great commentator, Donald Guthrie, says it like this. Paul's pre-Christian career had been the object of pity rather than judgment. In the sight of God. Because he recognized in Saul of Tarsus a servant of mighty potential when once he was enlightened. Now what I don't want you to leave today thinking, in spite of the context of 1 Timothy, is that ignorance is a condition by which somebody can be okay. In other words, as long as people don't hear about the gospel... God won't hold them accountable for the gospel. And that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, if the Bible did teach that, we've said this many times, then why would we proclaim the gospel to anyone? Why would we want to take the gospel to the far reaches of the world where people don't know who Jesus is? If ignorance is a condition in which all people would be allowed into heaven, then we should not proclaim the gospel to them. We would be better off keeping it to ourselves, not taking the gospel out. But the New Testament doesn't teach that. We don't stop our missions giving. We don't shut down all evangelistic efforts to the unreached, even to those in our own community, simply because they are ignorant of the gospel. Ignorance is not a free pass to forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. And we know this because of verse 15 in this very passage, which you should star, highlight, or underline. Even before Paul gets to the crux of the verse, he communicates to Timothy and to us that what he is saying here is legitimate. Look at it. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So what does this verse teach us? It teaches us that Jesus didn't come to make you happy. Jesus didn't come to give you worldly success. Jesus didn't come to fix your marriage. Jesus didn't come to make you a better father, a better youth coach, a better boss, or even just to get you to heaven. Jesus came to save you from your sin and to reconcile you to a holy God. And a byproduct of that is that, yes, you do get eternal life with Christ. But Jesus came to save sinners from their sin. And in today's world, we need to be as clear as possible about the good news of the gospel. We don't need to lead anybody astray into mentioning all of the previous things that I mentioned about being a better father, husband, better boss. Even though being a Christian can make you all of those things, that is not why Jesus came. He did not come to make you successful. He did not come to make you happy. He did not come to make you a better father or a better husband. He came to save us from our sins. Never forget, clarity is kindness. Communicating clearly the truth of the gospel is the most kind thing that we can do for lost people. The gospel is good news because Jesus left his place in heaven, came to live among us, lived the perfect life that we were incapable of living, died the death that we deserve for our sin, so that any who repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ can be reconciled to a holy God. Jesus stepped up in my place and in the place of anyone that is in Christ today and took on our sin. He took on my selfish, stubborn, prideful, impatient, and often irritable self. And he took all of those sins on himself. Because he loved me. And he died for me. And if you're fearful of bringing up sin in other people's lives, let me just let you use Paul as the crutch here. Go to this passage. Paul says, look, Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So use Paul as that example for those people that you're dialoguing with about the gospel. If you don't want to get into all the dirty laundry in their life, which, by the way, they will eventually have to deal with, start with Paul. Show them how God transformed the life of a sinner, more than likely, who has done many things worse than we will ever do. Slaughtering Christians in the name of his religion. He says he is the foremost of sinners. So start with Paul, then go to yourself, then work it into the life of the person you're trying to communicate the gospel to. And in verse 17, we're given the reason as to why God showed mercy to Paul. Here's what it says. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I'm becoming more and more aware as I get older how patient God actually is with not only me, but with all of us. God could have ended humanity 
in Genesis 3 if he wanted to. As soon as Adam and Eve ate of the fruit which God commanded them not to, he could have cast them out of the garden and ended the grand experiment of humanity. But he didn't do it. And of course we know that was not his plan. However, he certainly could have because he is God. He put up with not only the corruption and sin in Adam and Eve's life, he put up with the corruption and sin and the imperfection in their offspring, which has continued on to this day. Consider the patience that God showed Paul. When he is standing there giving approval to the stoning of Stephen. Consider the patience of God as he allows Saul to ravage the church and to drag people out of their homes who were professing faith in Christ. And consider the patience that he shows you and I daily as we fail in our pursuit of sanctification. Stephen Sharnock wrote a great book on the attributes of God. He says, The power of God is more manifest in his patience to a multitude of sinners than it could be in creating millions of worlds out of nothing. So as you proclaim the truth of the gospel to yourself and to others, remember that the patience of God is on display, not only towards Paul, but on all of humanity. And number three, we see as this passage closes, Paul's current life in Christ. The gospel has the power to save because we see in this text what Paul is doing. Look at verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So he acknowledges that God is the king of the ages. It's not the Roman emperor who's in control at this time. It's not Nero or Claudius or Augustus or Domitian or Titus who were all Roman emperors in Paul's day. No, it's not those men who is the king of the ages. It's God. He reigns forever and ever. His reign has no end. It has no term limits. It has no expiration date. He also says that God is immortal and invisible, which we just sang about earlier. Immortal is often translated in some of our translations as unchangeable and incorruptible. Our God does not age. He is spirit. And he's not subject to the decay of bodies like we have over time. He had no beginning and he has no end. The number of his years, Job tells us, is unsearchable. Isaiah 40 tells us that he is an everlasting God. He was before we were born and he will remain after we're gone. He cannot be measured or defined by standards of time. He is invisible, the text says. That is, God's total essence, all of his spiritual being, will never be able to be seen by us, yet God still shows himself to us through visible, created things. Many passages in the New Testament discuss the fact that man cannot see God. Even in the Old Testament, when you have occasions where people appear to be seeing God, they are seeing visible manifestations of God through other means. Like Moses in the burning bush, 
when he appears as a pillar of cloud by day or a pillar of fire by night. Our God is glorious. He is holy and beyond comprehension. Our finite minds cannot ever truly understand him in his essence. We are not capable mentally of grasping the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of who God is. So what does that lead us to do? Exactly what Paul does in verse 17 here. It leads us to worship. After Paul acknowledges that God is king, that he is immortal, that he is invisible, the only proper response is to give him honor and glory, which is what Paul does in this verse. I don't care how smart you are. If you start reading and start meditating on the attributes of God, your head will begin to hurt. Because that's how amazing God is. When I read stuff on the attributes of God, I never feel more small and dumb. Because I can't fully grasp in this mind the beauty and the majesty of who God is. So we can only do what Paul gives us the example to do in this passage, and that is bow down and give glory and honor to the God that we worship. Paul's salvation leads him to worship. And if you are in Christ today, your salvation should lead you to worship. The evidence of Paul's current life in Christ is the fruit that he exhibits which is primarily consisting of his worship of God. So, the mercy and the grace offered through Jesus Christ, do you grasp it? Do you understand it? No matter what sins you have committed, no sin is more powerful than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means for our sins. So when you communicate the truth of the gospel and those people reject the gospel, what they are saying in that moment is the death and resurrection of Jesus doesn't have power over their sin. And it does. The good news of the gospel has power over our sin. Lost people in the room, please listen to me this morning. The church of Jesus Christ does not exist as a place for you to come after you have cleaned yourself up. That's a huge misconception, which when you talk to lost people, it's very confusing. You hear things like, once I get my life in order, then I will come and I'll get involved in church. No, no, no. The gospel is what cleans you up. It's not your own efforts to be cleaned up. So we don't clean ourselves up and then come to church after we feel good about ourselves. We come to church because the gospel has already cleaned us up and we need this weekly reminder about the gospel and about the forgiveness of sin. And we need the weekly gathering of our brothers and sisters in Christ to hold us accountable, to encourage us when we're down. Now we don't come here to get cleaned up. We come here because the gospel cleans us up. Talk to any Christian in this room today. They will tell you they are not here in order to get cleaned up. They are coming here in response to the gospel, having already forgiven them of their sin and giving them a home 
in the church of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.7, beautiful verse that Paul pens. He says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So it is my prayer today, it is the prayer of our church today, that if you are not in Christ, you would repent of your sin. And you would believe in faith in the finished work of Jesus. And receive, as Paul tells us, the riches of his grace. Receive the forgiveness of your trespasses that can only come through understanding that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can make you right with God. And that's the reminder that Paul leaves Timothy with in this passage. Timothy, as you go in to Ephesus, as you remain in this church, and you try to weed out these false teachers who are teaching a false gospel, don't try to, don't try to intellectualize the crowd. Don't try to amaze them with your wonderful teaching. Take them back to the basics. Remind them of the truth of the gospel over and over and over again. And if you do that, those people in Ephesus, the true believers in Ephesus, will reject the false teaching, which was based on all sorts of myths and endless genealogies. So the core of the message today is stay true to the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all that we do as a church and all that we do as individuals following after Jesus We trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus to be reconciled to a holy God. Let's pray. God, you are immortal and invisible, king of all ages. And to you we give honor and glory forever and ever, as Paul says here in this passage. And we thank you for your patience that was not only on display in Paul's life, but is on display daily through your common grace. God, may we leave today in awe of your patience and your love and your grace and your mercy towards sinners. And if there's anyone here today who is under the lie that they cannot come to you because their sin is too great, may your Holy Spirit penetrate that heart. And allow that individual to repent of their sin and place their faith in you. You are worthy of our worship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.